Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. Before we get into the episode, I have a little announcement. I would like to announce that I am fucking tired. I am exhausted. We've been doing this podcast reliably without interruption for several years now, and I need a little break. Life is hectic. So we're taking off for the month of March. We're going to freeze the Patreon for that month so our wonderful subscribers don't get charged. You won't be charged money. And during that time, we'll reach into the vault and release an old paywalled episode for free so you folks have some content to gnaw on while you wait for us to come back in April. So see you in about a month. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to the episode. In this podcast, we talk a lot about transgressive art and pushing the envelope. We rail against censors and prudes. And for that reason, we've gotten a little bit of a reputation as shock jocks and edgelords. And we have definitely attracted some shock jocks and edgelords. But in this episode, we're going to talk about the limits of shock value. Joining us once again is the world's greatest writer, June Martin. June, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. I feel like this is the moment now where I just like unload a list of all my favorite slurs. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Har- Harley, no, do not hang off the balcony. Har- no, no, Har- no. The cat is making me nervous. Get down. Get down. Oh. Get down. They're, they're, use the stairs. Go downstairs by the stairs. Do not... Don't do it, Harley. I, I I live in a loft, and my desk is facing the balcony now, ba- facing the balcony railing because the feng shui is better that way. I am in the command position of the apartment. Uh, but the trouble is that sometimes the cats like to hang out on the balcony in front of me, and it makes me nervous as hell because mm-hmm. Harley ha- and Henny have both fallen off of there, and it's a pretty big drop. They're okay. They were both fine, but still makes me very, very anxious. Yeah, of course. Like, Harley has nine lives, but also, that stupid boy cannot count to nine. He's real dumb, yeah. He doesn't know. He's not keeping track. No. He's not smart. Henny, Henny, no, Henny. Fucking <laughs> cat, Jesus Christ. Can't, no. Speaking of edgelordism, my cats are being edgelords in, in that they're just lording over the edge just frightening me and making me anxious right now. No. Jesus Christ. Okay. They they heard you were taking a break and they're like, we got to get in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. People are going to miss us. <laughs> yeah. If anything does happen, you'll know because you'll hear a really loud 10 pound of cat thump followed by me crying oh. and, and worrying that I'm a bad cat owner. <laughs> Harley set himself on fire the other day. I still haven't recovered from that fully. Cats are not supposed to do that. He decided that a scented candle would be a good thing to rub up against while it was lit. And it it's not a good thing to rub up against when you're made of fur. And he fucking set himself on fire. I, I saw him going for the candle and knew that he was dumb enough to do that. So I sort of leapt in and, and reached for him, but I didn't get to him quite in time to stop him. So I, fortunately, he was not hurt. I, like, got the fire out really, really quickly. It, he wasn't burned or anything. He's perfectly fine. All that happened is he smelled really bad for a while because the smell of burning cat hair is not nice. It, it it doesn't smell good. No. But but that was another fun adventure, just me putting out a flaming cat. Not what you want to do. Not not a good time. I was really upset. Like, as a general rule, you don't want your cat to be on fire. No. No, I don't. So, anyway, <laughs> what do we mean by edgelordism and shock value? Um, I don't know if you can hear the boy yelling. That is his yell of triumph. Oh. That is his scream of joy. <laughs> oh, he he has never made a mistake. He's so good. He's the um. perfect boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, th- I hope this tides the listeners over for the next month just to, to have enough Harley shouts for quite some time. Um, before we go on, let's talk about what we mean by edgelordism and shock value. Uh, edgelord or shock value or shock chalk or the word grimdark. 
are accusations that often get thrown at art that makes people uncomfortable. Uh, Game of Thrones gets accused of it a lot. A, a lot of like dark fantasy gets accused of being grimdark or edgelord. A lot of me- a lot of like harder music or, or metal or something like that. But I think we should define the term or refine the term because we're not referring to any dark media as inherently edgelordy or shock jock or grimdark. We're we're not. Calm down, cat. Jesus Christ. We're not bashing dark art. We we love that here. But when we're using the terms like edgelord or shock jock or shock value, what we're saying here is that you're being gross because your goal is to gross people out. You're being shocking for the goal of shocking people first and foremost, and not necessarily for any other reason. And I want to say that that's not inherently bad. Yeah, it is important to disentangle those two things because as we explore this what we need to like keep in mind is that the same element can be in present in different stories in terms of like an act of brutal violence and have different valences in all of those different stories and so we're what we're not saying is like that this cannot be portrayed right but that there are different ways of approaching it and some ways that are perhaps less effective than others Right. Like, it's how you're approaching it, it's why you're approaching it, why you're making the choices you're making. And I want to say that shock value in art isn't necessarily a bad thing. Not everything needs to be tasteful, not everything, you know, sometimes being shocking for its own sake is kind of a good thing. Like, um, there are a lot of artists who happily revel in bad taste and shock value, and it can work really well. John Waters likes to call himself the king of filth, and he loves reveling in bad taste. And it works. It, it's great. I fucking love John Waters. So sometimes art being really shocking or, or deliberately using bad taste can be a way to challenge your social norms. And a lot of the time, social norms should be challenged. You can shake people up, and sometimes it's a very good thing to shake people up. So again, we're, we're not trying to say, like, you should never be shocking, or you should never do anything in bad taste. Yeah. Bad taste absolutely has its place, and, and it can be a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, powerful thing if used effectively. Yeah. The way that, like, John Waters, I think, is an incredible example here, because... A lot of his stuff is absolutely like shock value first, but because it is married so tightly with camp, mm-hmm. which it itself is a very historical like gay mode of media, you get that you get this like playfulness in with the shock value, and you get this sort of valence of lightheartedness along with just the absolute disgusting filth that creates a very interesting texture um, to his work and what makes it so fun. And like even when it's hard to watch, and I I know I say like texture, and I think immediately of pink flamingos, and of course now I've made all of you think of that too. Right, <laughs> right, right. So again, even being a bit of a shock jock, even being a little bit of an edge lord, have done really, really well. Like is awesome. We love it. We love that shit. We fucking love John Waters in here. John Waters rocks. God, I love John Waters. Um, so we're not trying to say that art should never be shocking. I mean, this is us, obviously. But I think there's also a way to do it kind of poorly. And I, something I want to stress, too, is that I think a lot of the reason why we're in this current era, this current very fuzzy, if you want to call it squeakor era, in a lot of culture and a lot of media, especially geek media, I think that sort of early 2000s edgelord shock shock bullshit kind of got us here like i don't know how many of you are old enough to remember but back in the day the style of humor was to be as sort of shocking and edgy and kind of mean as possible it was just to be as like gross and bad taste as possible and that fucking sucked like it really really sucked because a lot of the early 2000s humor was just being mean it was really a lot of ironic quote-unquote misogyny and ironic homophobia and ironic racism and a lot of that shit aged badly because a lot of it turned out to be unironic unsurprisingly mask off like early vice magazine loved playing with this sort of quote-unquote ironic shocking politically incorrect humor and oh wait 
shit, it turns out that the guy who ran it was literally a neo-Nazi. It, it was not, it was not ironic racism. It was not ironic sexism. It was, this is who this guy actually is. So I don't want to return to that era either because I remember that era and it fucking sucked. It especially f- fucking sucked if you were like a girl or it sucked if you were queer. It would, it sucked if you were like anything other than like, a thin, you know, able-bodied, straight, white dude. It really, really sucked shit, and I don't want to go back to that. I don't want us to go back to anything like that. And what I'm afraid of right now is that I think we got to where we are as a reaction or an overcorrection against that. I'm worried that, you know, I think people are getting kind of tired of where we are now, and I could see us swinging back the other way, and I'm worried... Are we going to swing back too far? Because I don't want to go back. (laughs) Yeah, me either. And I think the fact that we are where we are being a reaction to that, like previous edgelordism is why we so often see like edgelord, shock, shock, grimdark as terms of pejorative against things like Game of Thrones, which are quibble with it, like the ending criticisms of the show abound, numerous criticisms available even of the books. But the idea that they are like one note and shock value is a patently like ridiculous claim to make about them. But the reason why they are used pejoratives in this dominant mode of, I mean, let's just, let's, let's call it squeak We're on right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> is because those are the terms of the movement that they have supplanted. And so they are a very effective pejorative in that sort of the sense of like, well, these are the things that we have defeated and from this dominant position is easy to like marginalize other works by using these phrases as pejorative. Right. But there's a downside to that, which is if you're calling things that people like and are good, grimdark, people are going to think, well, hey, what's up with this grimdark thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a black and white thinking too, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about our own issues with shock value as a goal in and of itself shock value as your goal is just to shock people and just to shock them and just to shock them and just to shock them and i think a lot of artists and and i've noticed a lot of artists in our orbit kind of falling into this desire to shock and this almost contrarianism right like you get scolded by the moralists you get scolded by the puritans so you decide fuck you i'm gonna be everything you hate i've, I've heard some writers uh, that i know say well every time i hear people complain about our sex scenes necessary in art i'm going to add more sex scenes to my work which okay i mean that's fun but is that what your work actually needs did your work need that particular scene And I'm not saying it's wrong to put sex scenes in art, obviously. You know, it's cool. It's good. But my issue is, are you letting people who hate you and people that you hate determine the shape of your work? Like, okay, you've gone beyond letting other people censor you, and that's good. But you're still kind of writing for the censors, only you're writing specifically to upset them. But you're still writing for them, right? You're Like, you're still writing to this audience that's hostile to you. And I don't want to do that. That's not the audience that I want. That's, I want to turn that person off when I'm writing. I want to, I don't want to write to please that person, but I don't want to write specifically to upset that person. I, I need to get that out of my head because, you know, on one hand, I don't want to let people who hate me tell me who I am. And I'd rather kind of do my own thing or lead or go my own way than to react to other things. It, 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 it can be a trap. It can be kind of satisfying, and I understand falling into that, and I've definitely gone into stages where I, I've kind of fallen into that trap, but it's a trap. Maybe it's a stage, you know, part of your liberation, but you need to move beyond that and, and keep going beyond that. I agree. Like, you can oppose someone and say, I'm, I'm doing the opposite of you, and you can be more correct than they are, but ultimately... By forming yourself in opposition to them, you are letting them set the terms of the conversation. And I think this in terms of the sex scene thing, which sex scenes are actually a very complicated part of a piece of fiction, not just because of like current cultural attitudes toward them, but because sex is such a like delicate and nuanced form of like communication between characters and if your focus on in a sex scene is sort of just like well i'm adding this 
to like be explicit, you're missing an opportunity because you are seeing it in terms of your imagined prudish opponent and not seeing it for the opportunity that, that it is. Mm. And not to go off on a tangent, but I, it's very similar to the conversation around like representation in fiction where people are like, oh, we need good representation only. And the opposition to that is like, ah, no, we need like, to use queerism, ah, we need like really, really messy, like, oh, like awful queer representation. Like, I've got nothing wrong with that. I love some like messy queers, but the idea that the way to oppose that we need good representation is like we need bad representation is like completely misses like the actual answer, which is we need a di- we need different terms of the conversation entirely. Yeah. And I think the sex scene conversation is another one of those. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the notion of representation, too, because it seems a little bit like going beyond defining your work, but also defining yourself. And I know there's a lot of people like to reclaim terms and a lot of people like to sort of play with it. Oh, you call me this. Uh, I guess I am. And and this doesn't just happen with identity. This happens with politics, too. We had a lot of women calling themselves nasty women and a lot of right wing people calling themselves deplorables. And I'm a this, I'm a that. And, and it's kind of like, all right, what I'm watching is people sort of rub dirt and filth upon themselves and go, aren't I a naughty boy? Aren't I a naughty girl? And it's like, it's kind of grotesque. It's this display of like self-hatred or don't you hate me? Aren't I a naughty little thing? And it's just kind of like, I, I want to be a grown up. I don't want to be either of these things. Maybe this is part of just me that I'm getting older. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older and that's, I'm too old for that fucking shit. It's just teenage shit. And maybe part of this too is my own writing process. Um, I write really, really slowly. I've been working on a novel, like a gothic horror novel, I guess, for about five years now. And at the end of it, I need it to say something besides, fuck you, dad. And not my actual dad. You know, my actual dad was very nice. He watched Star Trek and smoked weed mostly. Really nice guy. But, um, you know, that energy of that, like, fuck you, fuck you, dad. I can't keep up the fuck you, dad energy for five years straight while I'm writing. And if I put five years into putting something whose only thesis is fuck you, dad, like, that's, that's a lot to spend five years on. Maybe if I was, if I was churning out something quick, like I've, I've written, you know, shit post stories. I've written like, little silly fuck you stories but those are always very very quick things that are like one or two thousand words that i bang out in under a week but to to write a full novel length whose only thing to say is like fuck you fuck you too like that's just i don't want to put that much time and energy in and only have that to say yeah i know i I once wrote something that everyone took to be like a fuck you too and people actually missed like the other drift of it Hmm because they saw it as being like plugged into like the discourse around Isabel Fall and like in a way where it was kind of assumed that that plugged inness was total yeah instead of partial and that is a danger of plugging into these things in that way which is it is it can flatten your work even if you don't want to be flattened mm. but it can also be dangerous if you are writing to prove people wrong when you're doing that, you're producing writing that is not thoughtful. It is writing that is more about who you are as a writer and making a point of contrast between yourself as the writer and these other people. And like, look at how much better and look how much braver I am. Look at how much more shocking I am. And I think writing to prove something about yourself is a really bad place to come to things from as a writer, much in the way that like trying to write something to prove how clever you are doesn't really work and like doesn't end up producing works of fiction that actually are full of the kind of like interlocking and like complicated thought that makes a piece of fiction really shine Mm. my example of a writer who does this and in fact both the posturing and the shock value is otessa mosfe Ooh, your nemesis it's for now very one-sided because she has no idea who i am oh even though I'm the world's greatest writer. Yeah. But she's big enough that I think I can speak openly critically about her without anyone accusing me of bullying. Yeah, you're punching down. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. literally, because you are taller than her. I'm I am guess. definitely taller than her. You're very tall. Yeah, I'm... My legs are so long. You're like a, you're like a hot giraffe. 
It's very important to all you for all you listeners to know that. Yeah. Otessa Mosfe does this. I've called her just sort of like the quintessential poser as a writer because generally her fiction is written in a way that suggests that like the way that she approaches it is, well, what would a clever writer do here? Mm. What would someone who's like a little bit better than you and like a little bit too good for like contemporary fiction do here? Or in the case of um, Lapvona, uh, her recent novel, which was a like bleak and disgusting medieval tale, it was full of the bleak, the gross, the scatological. But it didn't really say much other than like how shocking she thought she was being. Yeah. And I feel like if you come away from a piece of fiction thinking about how the author sees themselves, that is a missed opportunity for more interesting thought as a reader, and it means that you as a writer have missed an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it has. And I'm going to note that sometimes the quieter stuff hits harder. When you, like, pile on gross thing after gross thing after gross thing, the gross things kind of lose impact, and you just, it, it, that becomes kind of the norm. And and that might be a purpose. Like, you might be doing that to show, like, the world we that this book takes place in is really disgusting or really awful or really base. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to necessarily question that, but if your, your goal is to disturb, like maybe you're kind of not, maybe you're just kind of be like, okay, I'm grossed out now. Now what have you got? Like some of the books we've read for uh, the book club, one of the grossest parts of uh, a previous month's book, Yukiko Matoya's collection the lonesome bodybuilder there's a story in it called an exotic marriage where like a woman is married to this horrible parasitic shape-shifting thing and there's a lot of really gross body horror stuff that happens in the story but for me the most memorable upsetting moment in the story is where her husband manipulates her into eating too much fried food and there's like tons of much weirder grosser shit that happens people's faces melt this guy like there's a vor scene but for me the part that upset me the most is when he's just whining at her and being a fucking little bitch so that she overeats fritters and it's just describing the way she's just cramming in these greasy fritters and it's just, it's the grossest part for me. It's the part I remember the most because of how it's handled and the emotional stakes behind it and what it signifies. It, I mean, it is just a woman eating too much fried food, which like, that's the thing I've done during my life. It shouldn't unsettle me that much, but it sure did. And it's easy to imagine another story where it's just like someone's eating a bunch of fried food and it doesn't have nearly that impact. But because of, like, the valences of, like, the husband, the way, like, the sort of, like, needly and, like, unctuous way, everything surrounding it, the context of it, delivers this relatively, like, innocuous, if unpleasant event, this really disgusting texture in a way that if you subbed it out for her just, like, eating, like, I know, some animal's intestines, it actually would have been less gross. Yeah. It's important to understand contrast as a source of intensity mm -hmm. just in a source of depth in a work both in terms of how like impactful in a, a calm work a sudden breach of violence can be because violence is like that in life a lot yeah. and like feeling how it can just intrude can be really impactful but on the other side in some work that is like often like correctly called like grimdark like the say the comic berserk um which is full of horrific violence it is the main thing that happens in the comic but like contrasting with that, there are moments of real tenderness and there are like there is still more going on. And it is just important not to only be doing one thing. Yeah, you don't want to play a song with just one note. And I'm, and I'm sure some music theory student is going to be like, well, actually, this will partake. Here's a list of songs that are only just one note and they're all very good. What do you know? OK, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You little snotty people. For you, well, actually, me. It's gonna be some John Cage before, thing. Before you, John. Yeah, fuck you, John Cage. Like, like, fine. We're we're owned. Whatever. Extend those four minutes and thirty three seconds to the rest of this episode and just stop talking. Okay. Um, <laughs> but would you need more than than one note? And the quiet moments make the loud moments hit harder. And how you present things and how you linger things. Um, Another instance of a book that we talked about on the book club is Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions, and that's a book in which a man goes on a violent rampage in his small town. And something I really want to stress is that he doesn't kill anybody during this rampage. A lot of writers who, who would write, you know, a man goes on a violent rampage story would have him killing people, killing people, killing people, doing a slasher thing. 
And he doesn't do that. He just beats up people really, really bad. He just beats up a lot of people really, really bad. But in the book, Vonnegut takes the time to get to know these characters. He shows you everyone's inner lives. He tells you everyone's penis size for some reason. And he doesn't shy away from showing just how awful the violence is and how much it hurts these people, how it lingers on these people, how it affects them. So a moment that a lot more like shock value heavy writers a lot of these acts of violence are things that other writers might kind of skim over and just might get lost in this constant noise of violence and be like oh i didn't even die who cares and and it wouldn't hit but the way vonnegut presents it in here is that these beatings which again i want to stress no one dies in them end up feeling so brutal and they're brutal in ways that a lot of deaths in literature for me don't hit as hard like there's a bit where hoover beats up his son for being gay and it's like one of the most horrific moments of violence in a book that i remember reading and i still remember it vividly like years after reading the book and it's just just like fucking awful it's just grueling to get through this section and it's hit me so much harder than a lot of other writers might have hit by like killing a character yeah because i i think there's a tendency in some of the stuff that is called grimdark for like death to become actually quite cheap yes it becomes way too cheap and it yeah. kind of loses its impact you're just knocking over bowling pins or something yeah we're talking like grimdark then like we are implicitly talking about like warhammer 40k stuff where like billions of people die in a battle or whatever and it's like this is nothing it's meaningless and I, do, and I want to stress that if that's the point, if you're you're trying to point out that this is a society where life is meaningless, like, well, there can be a point to that. Like, I'm thinking of Paul Verhoeven, who uses tons of ultraviolence as a way to say, like, this is this brutal society we're working, we're living in. I, you know, I don't want to say that it's always wrong to kill off a lot of characters, but... But, like, you have to understand when you're doing that, the deaths won't be impactful. They will have almost no emotional content because they can't. Because to create that emotional content, you do have to do stuff like in Breakfast of Champions where the violence isn't shocking because it's violence. The violence is shocking because you've come to know these characters and you understand the ways that like this violence is a disruption of like their life and their hopes, like they themselves as like emotional beings. You understand not just as physical pain, but also as this intrusion of carnage into their lives. And something that he does in that book, too, is he lingers on the actual effects of injuries. It's not, oh, he beat that person up, and it's like, well, this guy's missing a finger now, and this guy's deaf in one ear because he ruptured an eardrum, and this and this woman, you know, has this problem now. And, like, he really, really stays with it because he's really, he's fleshing out these characters, and that means he's fleshing them out after they go through this thing. And not just before and during, but after. And, it, and it, he's making us understand these people are going to stay alive and they're going to have to keep living with this. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it is a permanent change to, to like the life that you encountered these characters living before the violence. Like It is not just a fight scene. Right. And that's something that I, I realized I played into with this book that I'm writing. I'm not without giving too much away. In the rough draft, it was a, a lot more murdery and just having a lot more fun with the murder and stuff and rewriting it, working on the second draft. I realized I'm not going to put any murder in this book. There is a death, but it's not something that I would really call a murder, in fact, with the way it's written. And I've, I found that to be a lot more interesting. Maybe it's a little bit less edgy or something. I mean, I feel like it will be m less shocking, but more impactful in the way I'm handling it. At least I hope so. <laughs> that is the goal, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, especially for a book. Like, a book's job is to bring to the fore, like, a wide, like, a network of ideas and explore them and bring up all of these like questions and complications and and ways that they entangle and you can't do that if you're trying to provoke just one experience from the reader yeah now in the notes you talked about uh the standard mode of extremity yes so i think and this is actually a little bit of a point of irony with some of this stuff which is a lot of people when they're trying to be shocking well, the only way you can shock in, in this sense is by pushing to extremes. Like, look at how extreme I can be as a writer. 
And always the extremity is the same kind of thing. It's extremity in gore, in sexual violence, in scatological. And that a writer should seek extremity on those means is actually, yeah, ironically unsurprising. It is what people always do. But those are not the only extremes in life. Actually, there is extremity possible in every experience. There's the extremity of boredom, of bleakness, of melancholy, or even happiness or joy or curiosity. Like pushing those to the extremes, like beyond normal experience, would be surprising and would itself be shocking. Because I think when writers are trying to like transgress, they are, it feels like they're always reacting to a lot of the same things. And by accepting that the way that they need to like transgress is to step over the line and stand opposite and say, fuck you, you and your opponent are like walking back and forth along this one line and leaving all of this territory untraveled. I think a great example of this is a book that was actually very surprising to me and perhaps even shocking and like actually maybe even like transgressing against the idea of like, well, what a, what is a book? It was a book called Vaseline Buddha. And what it was was a meditation on meandering. And every time it, tri- it started to tell a story, it veered off on another detail and told half of another story or got distracted or lost. And it was kind of boring. <laughs> but it was this extreme of meandering, of wandering, of distraction. And it was so surprising to me and so interesting. I think about that book all the time. And by doing something else i have an impression of this writer as someone who like ah like the brave and inventive writer who's not afraid to do something shocking yeah that's interesting that that's the way the writer's going to shock or going to extremes and that committing to that bit i mean that that's commitment to write an entire book that way i couldn't do that (laughs) i probably couldn't either and i and i can write a book with some absolutely fucked structures let me tell you (laughs) this is perhaps a strength and weakness of mine as a writer which is i always think of my the structure of my books as in terms of like systems of meaning like how do these parts correspond to these other parts in ways that help their, their meaning map in ways that make sense I don't really think very much about, is this structure going to be an enjoyable experience for the reader? (laughs) Often, I think it still is. I sort of, there are parts of my work that are more welcoming than the structure as sort of a balance, because I've heard like a rule of thumb is like, well, you can have difficult structure, difficult prose, or difficult content, or something like that. It's like, yeah, like, pick one, pick two if you're really ambitious. Mm. And I know, like, surprise me, do all three. If you do something well enough, you can do anything. Yeah. There's a lack of creativity in edgelordism. Yeah. Anyone can scream the word rape really loud. It's not hard. Yeah. But by desiring to shock, you have failed to be surprising. And surprise is where you really make an impact on readers. It's why that contrast that we talked about earlier is so important, because you can't have surprise without setting people up with different expectations. Mm -hmm. Setting people uh, or like... Allowing readers to come in with an understanding of, like, here are the limits that exist on these things, on these concepts, and then pushing past them. But I don't think there's anyone in the world who thinks at this point that there is any limit on cruelty. No. <laughs> which, is, which is not to say that you can't represent it. In fact, it is important. As much as I hate the word, uh, it's important. It's necessary. Um, yeah. It is important to have fiction that represents the full depth of human cruelty and depravity and violence. Right. But it's works that breach the normal limits of those things in search of other meaning that are really impactful. Right. A lot of the works of shocking art, they work, I need to stress, not because just the shock value, but also because they're really well-crafted and they have something to say. Like... The famous Piss Christ photo, it it's genuinely an aesthetically pleasing photograph. Yeah. Like, it's a really pretty photo of of a crucifix in some piss. Yeah. And like, which adds another interesting layer. It's not like, look at this piss. It's I mean, it's something called Piss Christ, but then yeah. it's like, 
genuinely quite beautiful. Yeah, like it, it's 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 a very like warm and inviting photograph. It is. If you didn't know it was piss, you'd just think like, oh, that's pretty, that's nice. Yeah, and it, again, it's that contrast. Right, or or the uh, movie that we love in our group, uh, Ken Russell's The Devils. There, a lot of shocking, unpleasant, icky things happen in that movie, and I still haven't seen the director's cut. Because the cut that's on Shudder that I saw uh, didn't have a certain scene involving a bone in it. But, I mean, the movie, I love the movie not just because the bad stuff happens. And yeah, there's a lot of shocking things in it. But this, again, it's a movie with a lot to say. I mean, it's beautifully crafted. It's incredibly aesthetic. It's gorgeously photographed. The costumes, the set design. It's just fascinating to me the way the way the the convent looks like a mental institution the way this sort of weird anachronistic set design is really 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 interesting to me and everything looks like surreal and and strange and slightly modern and it also just has a hell of a lot to say about the church about human relationships about politics about sexuality it's not just look at this gross shit I loved watching The Devils. The version I watched, it was, like, great quality. Then, like, the nun orgy scene, which had to be at, like, 50p resolution. Right. Like, five pixels writhing together on screen. (laughs) And then cut back to the rest of the film because someone had just, like, edited it in. Yeah. (laughs) But, and I think the reason why some of these movies are remembered more for, like, ah, they're, like, shock value. Oh, these, like, disturbing stuff is... Because, like, your thoughts about the movie are being informed by, like, the reaction against it. And the reaction against it is responding to these elements that were transgressive, but that's not the entirety of the work. And the reason why someone hates a work is not the same reason why, like, a person should like it. Mm. I think about Solo a lot because now there's a transgressive film. It sure is. Uh, It is really horrifying stuff on screen and it was done not because the director was like "Ooh, i'm a, i'm a shocking little boy <laughs> i'm a naughty boy i'm a nasty woman no no i'm a deplorable no no he was not it was to create a film that like portrayed the mind of fascism and like to accomplish that film's goals it needed to go to these utter horrifying depths and it is a truly transgressive film and it's truly unpleasant to watch because that sickening unpleasantness that misery of watching it is provoking an emotional experience that is like resonant with like the other ideas that helps you get into the mindset you need to to understand what the film is saying yeah yeah, or, oh, we recently, for for Valentine's Day in the server, we watched Audition, which is also known for being a very violent, very shocking film. And something that struck me, because this was uh, a rewatch of it, this was the second time I've seen the movie, which is probably twice as many times as you really need to see Audition. But what really struck me is that the first hour of the movie is really quiet, and it's actually almost a romantic comedy. Like... This is a movie whose premise was very much in line with the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan romantic comedies of the 1990s. Like, oh, a man gets a woman through deception, and she finds out, and she gets mad. And, well, that's like every rom-com from the 90s. The reason the movie works so well, especially when it gets really, really disturbing at the end, is how quiet it is, and, and this sort of coldness, and how it's really beautifully shot and really, really well acted. Like, it's. If it was just this nonstop sort of screaming in your face, it wouldn't work, but the fact that this the man at the center of this movie is doing this thing that is kind of fucked up, but he's still kind of sympathetic in a big way because he's this lonely widower and how this woman who turns out to be a really dangerous, horrible, scary woman, how the actress plays her as she could go either way. Maybe there is something terribly wrong with her, or maybe she is just incredibly fragile because she is this abuse victim and she does look like she's ready to just, you know, break into pieces at any given moment. And it's such a well-made film and it's so carefully made. And I mean, you've got these really, really horrific scenes of, of torture, but there are a lot of parts that are just not shown like simply not shown like 
the bit where the the bag moves is like one of the most horrifying moments. And all we're seeing is that a bag is moving. Yeah. It's just we have the context to understand what's wrong and that there's what exactly is in the bag. And that's what's scary is about it. But like it's this incredibly horrifying, disturbing moment is just a large bag sort of moves. Anything could be in that bag. Exactly. A smaller bag. It's probably fine. Perhaps. Yeah, a bunch of, a bunch of little bags. Yeah. That, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. It's too many bags. Audition is a great example because in a story, you always have the option to add complication, not just in terms of a lot of things happening in the story, but like emotional complication in terms of like making it hard to like, or not hard so much as creating situations where there is no like good guy or bad guy, or there is, but like, but the ways in which they are bad are mitigated by these other things. And you can keep the viewer away from simple revulsion or simple catharsis and keep them somewhere in the middle where they have to think and actually try to understand what they're seeing or what they're reading. Yeah. In general, I, I think the the need to shock, this desire to shock as a reaction, it ties into this all or nothing kind of black and white binary mentality. That's not just a bad way to look at art. It's it's not a good way to look at the world. It, it's not a good way to approach yourself, to approach other people in your life. It's just psychologically not a great way to think it's a it's a mindset and it's a mindset i've been like trying to escape from for a very long time personally so this idea that you either have to make wholesome family-friendly squee work or you have to make like horrific ultra-violent you know rape snuff porn i don't want to make either of those i i don't i don't want to make either of those things i don't i don't want to do that but people really want to stick you in one camp or the other you have to be like wholesome or you have to be a sicko and it's something I noticed when I wrote that essay, Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny. Some people accuse me of wanting to stick hardcore pornography into every single movie. And that's deranged. That's not a response that I expected. And of course, that's not what I was asking for. Like the scene in that essay that I referenced as like, here's an example of something that treated normal bodies and desire as mundane was a bit from Poltergeist which is a PG movie by fucking Spielberg. Like, it's just, it, it's not porn. It's not pornography. Yeah. It's just this really kind of nice little cozy scene where you see two people who are in a long-term relationship and the dad is kind of fat, just like smoking weed and it's very, and, and feeling a bit frisky toward each other. And, and that's it. And I think it's a beautiful scene. And this all or nothing attitude creates a space where you either get these like unreasonably restrictive, oppressive boundaries, or you get no boundaries at all both of those are places where like abuse and cruelty happens where people aren't respected and reasonable boundaries are good they're very good to me <laughs> they're, they're good for people <laughs> yeah i think where a lot of this comes from is a lot of people understand their engagement with culture as the site of like their political struggle i think this is very tied up in squeak horror mm as you and JR explored in that previous episode. Yeah. Which lends itself to the crusade. And it's like, if this is where we are making our political engagement, then we need to win. And the only way we can win is by pushing like our value to like the limit. And I think it's a misunderstanding of how politics and art engage, because it's actually much more indirect than that. But it also creates these intensities and and again, this opposition, because we're so used to thinking of politics as a system of two opposing forces, and that the only way to be victorious over a political entity is to be part of its direct opponent. And for art, this makes no sense. Yeah. Just because art goes through such a complicated process of social evaluation, which is itself filtered through like existing ideological, philosophical, etc. mode. The line from your art to real political change is so complex that you cannot hope to just pull that lever directly with whatever you've made. But I think people get caught up in the struggle and people end up making a lot of fiction that is directly in response to Twitter discourse. Oh, God. Which is such an unworthy thing to do with your fiction. Yeah. It is abdicating the chance to complicate. And again, for the sake of posturing, for the sake of presenting oneself as 
more moral or more shocking or smarter or purer or any of these things that the writer can try to be because they are trying to present themselves as a writer with their like who they are as a writer with their fiction and not present the fiction as itself the primary thing to think about right and i can kind of get why it is that way we're in the era of the influencer where like content is kind of secondary to your personal brand but as an artist i think you you really want to resist that you should be the antidote to that and not part of that how you brand yourself as a writer is unfortunately a thing that writers do have to think about if you want an audience yeah but i try very hard to resist that while i'm writing because i think it produces less interesting work and i think it interferes with the act of writing fiction as a mode of thought in itself yeah i mean you did brand yourself as the world's greatest writer which was good yeah that does that does trap you into having to be perfect all the time which is difficult yeah but like yeah here's my writing advice we're we're going on break time for some just like great writing advice that can carry you through bangers only yeah just just get good yeah write stuff that's good as hell and then write something better yeah write write good that's her advice is to write good yeah (laughs) but my actual advice for like writing good works of fiction that stick with people is to write things that are emotionally complicated that are surprising that catch people on their back foot and you can't do it with intensity of all one kind out the gate. Like, people may be shocked, but not in a way that's interesting. Yeah, I definitely do think for a while I did trap myself a little bit with my own brand of like, oh, the most dangerous writer, you know, most dangerous woman. And like, I've been kind of slowly moving away from it. But I want to stress that the reason I branded myself this, and, and this is kind of deep lore, is that uh, so a few years ago, <laughs> I wrote some posts on Twitter in which I said, I don't like fan fiction. I don't think it teaches you to write very well. I think it's kind of stupid. And as a result, a writing group I was in called Codex put me on their list of predators in in publishing. Like, and on this list of predators were um, some actual con artists, like people who'd committed financial fraud, and some people who'd sexually assaulted women at cons. So it was like some con artists actual sexual predators and me the fanfic hater and i had other writers people i knew people i'd hung out with in real life telling me that they'd had to schedule emergency therapy sessions to deal with the trauma of having to read my tweets and it was a very 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 strange time because i'd had was having people sending me death threats telling me i should kill myself while other people who i had to the that point considered colleagues were accusing me of being dangerous and violent. And as a result of that, I started calling myself the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction because people were treating me as this genuine threat that had to be eradicated. And it was very silly, and I thought, well, let me try and reclaim this, because the idea of little chubby five-foot-two hobbit-like me going up to someone and saying, I'm dangerous, just struck me as very funny. If you've, if you've ever met me, I'm really, really short. I'm very Hobbit-like in, in body type. Yeah, also very sweet and not particularly dangerous. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, but part of the, you know, brand coming from that, it's like, well, that, that it's kind of corny, first of all, to call yourself that. And then it's like, I realized it kind of had a habit of attracting some sorts of people who didn't get that the it was kind of a joke who didn't get that you know me calling people sickos was kind of a joke because i don't actually want to be a sicko very much i I, i'm just sort of a very mild-mannered person who goes to work and does volunteer work and plays with my cats and and all that stuff um and it's something i've worried a little bit of oh god have i trapped myself in this identity which is why i tend not to say it as much anymore it started as a very like liberating feeling of yeah you say i'm dangerous fine i'm dangerous be afraid of me but i'm tired of doing that it's exhausting i don't want to do it anymore (laughs) i'm too old for that shit but like it totally makes sense to want to like stridently oppose the kind people who would like put you on a list with like sexual predators for like making some mean tweets because they are clearly representing a patently ridiculous cultural force yeah but if you oppose them on the wrong grounds you're not accomplishing anything yeah and it goes from a reclamation into a trap of being like well i've, I've realized i've 
maybe I'm letting people who fucking suck shit and are horrible kind of help me define who I am, and I don't want that to define me. I don't want them to define me as much as they want to try to make me out to be this quote-unquote predator with my violence against um, my immortal. I, I don't really want to be that, and I don't want to, that to be my legacy on this earth. Yeah, it's this push and pull over questions that don't matter, which is the question of how much doesn't matter. Like, how much sex scenes, how few sex scenes, how much violence, how, how little violence, that's not a question that matters. There are people who think that is a question that matters, is their problem. The way to, like, oppose a cultural force like that isn't to, like, get into that push and pull with them. It is to be better. It is to literally write better things and write better things that have sex scenes, that have, like, shocking violence sometimes. But you, you, you won't beat them on quantity. You beat them on quality. Yeah. So, in conclusion, we urge all of you to write good. <laughs> Always. Always just write good. Yeah. Easy. Easy peasy. That's all you gotta do. Okay. So we're winding down. Uh, it's been about an hour before we go. June, promote your, your many wonderful works. Okay. Well, first and foremost, I have a book coming out, my debut novel, on the week of May 12th, called Love Slash Aggression. It is my novel of queer community conflict, surreal architecture, and the terrifying power of total agency. Nice. Yeah. It has two viewpoint characters, and one of them is a huge bitch. Nice. You'll love her. You'll hate her. And so on. I also write short stories. I have many available for free on the internet. You can find them at theworldsgreatestwriter.com. I also have a Patreon where I post them for free, which is also The World's Greatest Writer on Patreon. And that should generally get you to more than enough stuff for me. Though I really do have to stress the book. Buy the book. Buy June's book. Buy not, June's book. It's not out yet, so I need you listeners to just like do daily affirmations. I'm going to buy the book. Can we pre-order it somewhere? Not yet. Damn it. I know, but... Hopefully by the time this comes out, you will be able to pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, if not, soon. Yeah, keep an eye on it. Wake, just wait. Just wait by your computer, by Amazon, or, or a less evil uh, place to buy books for when Love Aggression comes on. Wait for it the way the girl in Audition waits by the phone. Click refresh. Do it again. Yeah, just keep doing it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. I'll see you in a month. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict. It was hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs>